0: Well, good morning again, if you have a copy of God's Word, whether with you, on your phone, however you got it, find the book of Genesis, chapter 3, work on our way through the book of Genesis together, and we'll be looking at all of Genesis chapter 3 this morning, Genesis chapter 3. And we'll begin reading together in verse 1. The word of God says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves lowing cloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The serpent, or the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. I get it. In the world we live in today, it's easy to be a pessimist, isn't it? Civil unrest, a pandemic that has caused me to not be able to go into anywhere I go without one of these, and it seems as if I always forget this when it's the most important thing, right? And that's not even to mention what happens if you just turn on the TV to get some news for the day. It could be very easy to be pessimistic in this world. And even trying to talk about the things that make us pessimistic about the world, you have to be so careful these days, don't you? Because folks are just ready to get riled up at anything that you say if you don't word it exactly right. And after seeing the incredible vision that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 of a world created good by God without death or sin, and you look at the world today and you go... What happened? That's right. Exactly. What happened? What went wrong? And our passage this morning is the Bible's answer to the question, what happened? Why? Why do we suffer when God created the world good? Why is there relation or relational turmoil when it seems as if Adam and Eve were in perfect harmony together in chapter 2? What happened to God's good creation? And Genesis 3 describes what the church and theologians have called for centuries as the, the fall of man, or simply the fall. And we'll look at this passage in three sections the cause, the curse, And the covering. The cause, the curse, and the covering. First, let's consider the cause of sin. The cause of sin. What went wrong with the world? Mankind sinned. And this only makes sense against the backdrop of Genesis 1 and 2. Mankind was created in the image of God. And as we saw last week, that meant that they were created to glorify God and rule over creation... As his representatives, Adam and Eve were given an incredible responsibility. And then you come to verse 1 of chapter 3 and you see a snake come to the serpent to test them, to tempt them, right? And we need to stop and notice something right out front. There's going to be questions that you'll have for Genesis chapter 3 that it's simply not going to answer for you. It's simply not going to answer for you. So, for example, yes, yes. Genesis 3 presents a snake coming up to Adam and Eve and talking to them. How does all of that work? I don't have all the answers for you, but it does tell us that the snake is crafty, and I believe Moses and the Holy Spirit knew what they were talking about, that they were referring to Satan and to the devil. Let me show you how, if you look, the rest of the Bible tells us this. One example is Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, which tells us this. It says that the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So I couldn't draw for you exactly what this looked like, that this serpent came to this couple, but I know what happened, and whatever form it did, he came to tempt them. And this is so important for us to consider, because in our world today, there's just this growing movement that, well, if I can't see it with my eyes, or, or if I can't just test it with what's in front of me, then it obviously doesn't exist. In a world of naturalism and secularism, the idea of a devil or demons just seems foolish to most folks, doesn't it? Like, some, like this is just some sort of mythology or some silly superstition, right? But let me tell you something. The, the movies that you see about the devil and about evil don't even begin to do justice to how cunning and crafty. This serpent he is. There are evil forces bent on destroying this world and bringing you down with it. And the moment we begin to deny it is the moment he has already won. Friends, he's far more crafty if you've ever seen those, those movies where it's just obvious who the bad guy is. That isn't usually how Satan works. He's a lot more smart than coming in with a pitchfork and horns and covered in red, Right? He, he's a lot more cunning, and we see this as, as we go through Genesis 3, how, how crafty and careful he is. Others will read this account and stop and ask, well, if God's creation was good, why is there a tempting serpent there anyway? And it's a very good question, not one Genesis 3 gives you any answers to. Genesis three one does tell us that ultimately... The serpent that came to them was one of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. That's there in verse 1. And we simply have to be comfortable with a level of mystery here. If you would want to read some things, if you'd want to read some some Bible verses to kind of look at with this, write down in your notes, if you're curious, Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, and Ezekiel 28. 12 to 18. You can look at those. They're sort of pull back the veil and show how Satan and his demons work and do some things. So those could be verses for those of you that are interested in some interesting Bible study later. You can go look at those. But notice that Genesis doesn't put the thrust here on the serpent, how he got there, or how bad he is. He puts the thrust on us. He puts the thrust on On mankind. His concern is not to have us think about the serpent's origins, but to think about how we fall into sin and fall into his same tactics. Notice what happens. The serpent, verse 1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice that Satan attacks God's creation, which he just spoke into existence by speaking. That what God does, Satan mocks and counterfeits. That he does not simply assault them through speaking, but notice what he does. He speaks and he questions them about what God said. Let's continue looking uh, in verse 1. good and evil. We notice that one of the tactics of the enemy, one of the ways he sought to deceive mankind from the beginning was to attack God's word. To attack God's word and to make sure it is forgotten and forsaken. That's the first point in your notes underneath. The cause of sin is that God's word would be forgotten and forsaken. God's word forgotten and forsaken. Notice When the serpent comes, he asks a very simple question. Did God really say? He begins to raise doubt about something. God spoke directly to the couple, and he gets even more crafty because he actually misquotes God, doesn't he? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God never said that, right? He said the exact opposite. He said you can have any tree in the garden except one right? But he begins here to, to, to sort of question and to challenge. Satan always goes after God's word, and he's likely was trying to challenge, how closely did Adam and Eve listen to them? How, how much did they really know this word? And notice Eve's response. This is key here. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did you catch it? She didn't get it right, did she? She didn't get it right. She added words to what God said, didn't she? God didn't say not to touch it, though it it might have been a good idea not to touch it, right? But he didn't say not to touch it. He said not to eat it. And hear me, Satan is pleased with people who know some of God's word or who make personal additions to it at certain spots. Satan's very pleased when people do that. He loves it when we try to add what we think to what God said because it puts us on the same footing as him thinking that we know best. He would love for us to do that. Be careful because evil can have full reign in your life, not simply by subtracting from God's word, but also adding to it. And notice the snake's reply, but the snake said to the woman, you will not surely die. God's word was forgotten, and it was forsaken. And notice verse 6, what happens next. And we'll look at some of this a little more in detail in a second, but look. So when the woman saw, verse 6, that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She took it first. She thought she would die by touching it. But once she did and she touched it and she didn't die, it became much easier to then eat it. Once she did what she thought was disobedience, it made true disobedience much easier to do. Friends, and that Satan's strategy has remained the same ever since. To get God's image bearers to forget or to forsake who they are to reflect. To forget or to forsake his word. But even behind this question, Satan was being far more crafty and cunning. Because Satan not only went after God's word, he, second, went after God's character. God's character was assumed and assassinated. God's character was assumed and assassinated. First, notice even the assumption behind what Satan's saying. Verse 5, verse 5, look at this. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan puts the assumption into Eve's mind that God was keeping something good from them. See, so many Christians put the emphasis in the text on that, that, that the, what the problem was was that the fruit offered them something that was bad. I'm not so sure that knowledge of good and evil in and of itself was bad because if you notice in verse 22, this is the kind of knowledge that God had. Look at verse 22. And then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. You can look in 1 Kings chapter 3, you can look this up later, but Solomon actually prays that he would have the, the ability to know or to judge good and evil. The problem wasn't the knowledge, the problem was how it was sought. The problem was how it was sought. By eating the tree, they declared their own autonomy. They declared, God, we don't need you. They declared they didn't need to hear directly from him. They could figure this out on their own. They looked at the supreme creator of creation and said, we know better than you. And if I can be frank, they lifted their fists to heaven and said, why do I need to listen or rely on your word? Obviously, I know better than you do. And if you want to go, why would they do that? I would venture, friends, that we do this every single day. We are often no different than Adam and Eve in the garden. They, know, they wanted this knowledge in a quick way. They wanted it on their timing, and they wanted it without reference to God. We don't know if God would have given them this tree at some point. We don't even know why this tree was here, if it was to give Adam and Eve a choice. We don't, we're not given all of that info in the text, but what we know is that Satan warned Adam and Eve and wanted them to see something sinister in the character of God. He wanted them, and by extension, friends, he wants you to believe that God is secretly keeping the good life from you. That God is secretly keeping from you whatever you want. So many people think that, well, I know when I was, when I was in high school growing up, I thought, well, if I just could get with this girl, my life would be great. But God says I'm not supposed to do that or be, or be you know, do that. And so what, what am I going to choose? Some of us think that if he would just let us sleep with that guy or girl, that, that he's keeping us from that because he hates us and he really doesn't want us happy. But in fact, he's protecting us. And after our joy, friends, I promise. He, or others of us think he's keeping something from us out there in the world that if I just wander and find whatever it is, Instead of giving it to God in his word that, that, that maybe whatever's out there I could somehow find to make me happy. That's the lie that Satan wants you to believe, an assumption about God's character, an assumption about his motives, that he keeps good things from you. And behind this assumption was an attempt to assassinate God's character, to kill God and to, and to sort of kill it and make him look evil. If the devil can get you to believe that God doesn't know what's best, he can kill you. Friends, he did it with Adam and Eve, didn't he? Why can't he do it with you? They sought to be wise apart from God. Did you see that, verse 6? When she looked at the fruit, she saw that it was desirable to make one Wise, And yet they had the creator of the universe who it said was walking with them in the cool of the day. And they needed an apple or some sort of fruit to have them know something? Friends, just call him over. And yet they wanted to do it their way. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord was the beginning of knowledge. Not them taking this upon themselves to pursue this fruit. If Satan can get you to believe that God is holding out on you, then you know where you turn? Inside yourself. You know, all these movies I watched growing up as a kid was just, just follow your heart. Just look inside yourself. That's where real meaning and purpose is found. Don't, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them, friends. If, you fo- if I followed my heart, I would be in all sorts of evil debauchery if I had done that as a kid. Friends, let me tell you something. That's exactly what Satan would love for you to do is look inside yourself and go, well, I'm the boss. Let me determine what my purpose and life and joy is found in. And friends, how many of us have done that and found that to get us where we wanted? It might have gotten us what we wanted in the time, but friends, it often left us shipwrecked. In the end, Satan and his demons are around us today trying to get us to believe that God has some hidden motives, that he isn't being honest with you, that he isn't telling you something that you need to know. Is there something in your life that you're thinking this way about? Because this text would warn you that you're playing right into his game. (laughs) The cause of this fallen world is sin, God's word forgotten and forsaken, God's character assumed and assassinated. And finally, God's image was tempted and tried. God's image tempted and tried. Look with me at verse 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves lowing cloths. You see the order of things? She saw the tree was good. It was a delight to the eyes and that it could benefit her. And so she took it and ate. And then, friends, she gave it to her husband who was standing right there next to her. She wasn't alone in this, was she? He was supposed to be there working and keeping the garden, and yet he let a snake come into his house, into his garden, come right up to his wife and talk her into this. Friends, we need to understand here that we're often very hard on Eve my friends, we should be a little harder on Adam, shouldn't we? <laughs> Fellas, when we stand by, this is what can happen to your family. You can let snakes just walk right in and take everybody out with you. Notice how crafty this is. Men, be, be aware of this, that our enemy is crafty and we need to be on our peak of knowing his word and leading our families to know and love his word. Notice how crafty this is. There's nothing wrong with her thinking. The tree was good. All of God's creation was good. It probably was delightful to the eyes and it probably made her wise in some sense, but it wasn't hers to have. It simply wasn't. And if she had known and remembered God's word here and said, no, God says otherwise, we, we would not have seen this fall. Why is the world such a mess? All the way back to the garden, God's word was forgotten and forsaken. God's character was assumed and assassinated. And God's image was tempted and tried. Mankind followed the devil in his path of rebellion. We see the cause which arose to second the curse, the curse of brokenness and separation. All of because of sin, all of creation bears a curse of brokenness and separation. Look with me at verse eight. Look with me at verse eight. Now, they being the couple. Heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The first thing we see is mankind naked and ashamed. Mankind naked and ashamed. Instead of the fellowship and the peace with God that they were meant to have, they hid from him, didn't they? They ran from him. And God's questioning was not because he didn't know the answer, but he was exposing him. Parents, you ask these sort of questions, don't you? You walk around the corner, and you see the candy all over the floor that you told them not to get into. Who did this? You know exactly who did this. They have the candy all over them. (laughs) Right? And our Heavenly Father, in much the same way, came to Adam and Eve here and said, Who did this? In order to expose them. In the end of chapter 2, we saw the couple naked and unashamed, and now we see them clothed and hiding Seeking shelter and hope somewhere else. Oh, how sin changes everything. You see, verse 23, verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam and his wife, out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. In the garden of, and in the garden, he drove out the man. And at the east, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Sin left humanity cursed, broken and separated, and left mankind naked and ashamed. And in the heart of this passage, we see a pronouncement of the curse. We're going to look at verses 14 to 19 together, but if you just gaze over it, if you were just to do a flyover, you see that God speaks to the serpent, verse 14, to the woman, verse 16, and then to the man, verse 17. And we'll look at those. Let's look at what he says first to the man and to the woman before turning to the serpent. And we'll see that what he tells the couple is that now, because of their sin, their marriage and work will be frustrating and futile. There's your second point underneath there. Your marriage and work will be frustrating and futile. Look at verse 6. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for, or your translation may say, contrary to your husband. And he shall rule over you. He talks about how sin will make their marriage very frustrating and futile now. Notice that the specific blessing that God gives to women to bear children and even the blessing of her being able to be a helpmate and a companion to her husband, that that was going to be impacted by sin. That, ladies, the curse of sin is what made your pre- is what makes or will make your pregnancy so difficult. That is what caused that sort of pain into the world. Creation was so impacted that, think about it, even bringing new life into this world does not happen without pain and suffering and struggle. He says, childbearing will be painful and marital relations will be difficult. Your your passage there in verse 16, your desire will be for your husband or contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Her desire is going to be contrary to his, so there'll be conflict. And his desire to rule here is not a, a sort of loving, kingly rule, but rather an abusive rule. This is not a positive thing that's occurring here. There's going to be marital strife and struggle. The reason, ultimately, that we fight with our spouse is because of the pain of sin in the world that's made difficult even to get along with one another. Literally, right after they both ate the fruit, we see the first fight between a married couple. Verse 11. Verse 11. Look at this. God said... Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Men, if you're looking for a way to start an argument, there you go, right? He blamed the woman and God for what he did. (laughs) Brothers, this is how you ruin your marriage. (laughs) He's supposed to be working and keeping the garden. He let the snake in and get close to his wife, and he blames everybody else but himself. This is not how it's meant to be. At some point, we stop looking for blame and instead take responsibility. It's what repentance means. Adam was meant to lead and protect his family, but the curse of sin brought the temptation to be accusatory and even to struggle, and we'll see in the pages ahead, to be abusive to one another. And then in verse 17, he turns to the man. And it shouldn't be lost on us that God says more to the man than he does to the woman or even to the serpent. I should tell you something here. Verse 17, look what he says. And to Adam he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The couple's sin didn't just corrupt their home life. It was going to corrupt Their work life, the ground that he was to work, would be cursed. Thorns and thistles would infest the ground. Our bodies would sweat and hurt out in the heat. And then he says, you're just going to work and work and work and work until you die. Happy days, right? Happy days. Any of us ever feel this? (laughs) Any of us ever just feel like you toil and toil and toil and work and work and work and there's still more work to be done? and he just never can get it all done, friends, that is a cause of sin. That, that's a curse from sin in the world. Marriage and work, two central stewardships of humanity, have been made frustrating and futile. And before this word of darkness, though, in the midst of this, there is a word of hope. Because God also spoke to the serpent, didn't he? Verse 14 and 15 the lord god said to the serpent because you've done this cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life and then the whole bible the whole bible is hope is ba- is is, is opening up what verse 15 is about to say. Your whole Bible, if I give you a summary verse for the whole Bible, it is Genesis 3.15. Look at this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this brings us to the third point that you see underneath the curse. It is that Satan is doomed for destruction. This cause of sin of God's word, forgotten and forsaken, his character assumed and assassinated, and his image tempted and tried has brought a curse of brokenness and separation that left mankind naked and ashamed, our marriage and our work frustrating and futile. But in the midst of this, God promises Satan is doomed for destruction. There's a lot that could be said here. But look with me, you see this, it says there's going to be enmity, this ongoing war between the serpent and his offspring, whatever that means, and then humanity and, and Eve's offspring. But notice the end result, he shall bruise your head. Friends, how do you kill a snake? You got you to gotta cut the head off, don't you? You got to crush the head, Right? And he says that there is going to be an offspring coming through Eve who would crush this serpent's head. And friends, that offspring has come. As Christians, we believe that this offspring is Jesus Christ, born of Mary, born 2,000 years ago, and that at the cross he dealt a deadly blow, and that one day he's going to come to finish the job. Satan thought he was bruising Jesus when he saw it, when he put him on the cross, but really it was God's means of defeating him. Through the cross and resurrection, Jesus has crushed the serpent and begun to reverse the curse and one day he will complete his work in the midst of darkness a promise of light. And not only a glimmer of hope here, but God also met the couple with a promise and he met him with mercy. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. We turn to our final point. We've seen the, cost, the cause, the curse, and now we see the covering. The covering. Here we see God give us a picture of what he's going to do in Jesus. He will crush the serpent And through Jesus, there's three realities we see here that He's going to He covers us in the midst of our sin. First, Jesus is the salvation initiator. Did you notice that there in the text that God made the, the the garment and He clothed them? He covered their shame. God slayed an animal for the sake of the couple and gave them this covering. And Adam did nothing but fail and run. But God came after him. Friends, God always makes the first move. And friends, God came after him. And here we see this reality clearly that Jesus is the salvation initiator. We did nothing in and of ourselves to invite it or to bring it for ourselves. But he came after us. Second, We see Jesus is the never-failing covenant maker. Never-failing covenant maker. Remember last week we saw that when you see that word LORD in your Bible in all caps, something special is happening there. That is the personal name, the covenant name of God that he used with Moses. That's where it's being used. And here we see this covenant name in verse 21 is still being used that even in Adam's sin, God didn't leave him. God, the Lord God, did this out of covenant kindness, never failing commitment, the I'll never leave you or forsake you kind of hold. This is what God does for his people and what he does for you. He'll take hold of you and not let you go. And finally... Jesus is the equal opportunity forgiver. Did you notice who he covered? Adam and Eve, the man and his wife, both with their own things to contribute to the situation, both with their own failures, mistakes, and their contribution to the problem, but God comes to both of them in their time of need. And friends, this should tell us that whoever you are in this room today, Whatever you've done, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever sins are piled up on your record, he can handle them. He's an equal opportunity forgiver. He hasn't just promised to crush the serpent's head, though he is going to do that. But he's also offered to save us, to keep us till the end, and to offer a covering of full and free forgiveness to any who turn to him by faith. To any who would turn to him and say, I need you, I'm a sinner, come and save me. And all of this points forward to years and years, thousands of years after Adam and Eve, and years and thousands of years before us, when Jesus Christ, the offspring of Eve, would come and begin to reverse the curse by doing what the first Adam couldn't do. He resisted the snake. Interesting parallel, you can go home and read when you get home. But in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has begun his ministry. He's in a a wilderness, and the serpent comes to him, doesn't he? And he begins to tempt him, to deny, to forsake God's word. He begins to challenge God's character in Matthew chapter 4. And consider that there, not in a lush garden... But in a wilderness, the snake came to tempt the Son of God, and the temptations looked the same, but he stood firm. He lived the life the first Adam should have lived so that he can save all of us who have fallen in Adam. So that he can save all the people who came after Adam and have inherited this curse and this sin. He can can save them if we would come to him and Adam all died, but in Christ all can be made alive. Consider for me Romans chapter 5, verse 17. You'll see it on the screen. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Ultimately, the Bible says in the human race, there are two groups of people, those in Adam Those who are Adam's fallen race, represented by him, ruled by death and condemnation. And then there's people redeemed by Jesus. His perfect, righteous representation and eternal life and holiness rule their life. Friends, what went wrong? We did. And what can fix it? Friends, let me tell you. Good political policies, the outcome of this year's election, even human kindness and selflessness, more money, new circumstances, more power, a new nation, a new boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse, whatever else, none of that's going to fix it. None of it is going to solve the deepest problems in this world. God's good creation was marred by the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and the whole cosmos was plunged into sin and despair, and we live in that world today. But the cure of Jesus Christ, he's recreating the world one person at a time and promises to recreate and redeem every square inch of God's world. Jesus has set a date where he will judge the world in righteousness. Evil has an end date. But will you be found judged alongside the evils of this world or saved out of the evils of this world in Jesus? Will we be found redeemed and resurrected alongside our king who died and rose so that he might save the world? Friends, sin is the cause of the issues in the world, and it will be met with a terrible end. Believe me, the call of this text is to look away from our sin and our self And to trust in Jesus, who is the tree of life that now we may eat and have everlasting life. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, you can can come to know this Jesus. You can call out to him where you are. You can talk to me or maybe the person who brought you here. And we'd love to chat with you more about that. But as Christians, we need to get our, our theology straight on how we understand the world. There are so many people who I think Really think that they can cure all of these sin problems some other way. And some of us have been have been tempted and going right along with Satan's schemes, and we needed to be awakened this morning. But friends, we can look together to Jesus and find Him again and again and again to be our faithful covenant-making Savior. Let's pray together. Father God, we're thankful for your word. I'm thankful for your goodness and kindness toward us in Jesus. I'm thankful for how you have loved us, given us an eternal comfort and a good hope that you didn't leave Adam in his sin and you don't leave us today. You have had us to hear your word that we're the least deserving and you've given us another chance to look to you that I pray that anybody here today who does not know you, that they would see that today is the day of salvation, that they might come to know you. I'm going to pray that we as Christians would be more aware of evil's work around us. And not to get caught up in the fray of this fallen world, but to look to our Savior who died for us and rose again to defeat death and to give us everlasting life. And we pray this all together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and